Scripture make a difference in your life? Does the hope of Easter make a difference as if my life can actually change? And more specifically, does the fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave, does it have the ability to make a personal impact on my life? I think the, the evidence, with, with, without, beyond a reasonable doubt, is that Jesus of Nazareth lived, was arrested, crucified, and died, and rose from the grave on the third day. But does that make a difference in my life? Does that truth lead to any kind of change for me? You know, there's a lot of things that are true in life that maybe don't really impact the way I live. For instance, we know that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. We know that when you travel in an airplane, you can lose up to a third of your taste buds. Did you guys know that? It's interesting. Try that next time. Take a sip of your latte on the plane. See if it tastes the same. We, we know that copper doorknobs are self-disinfecting. So I think everybody's going to run out and get some copper doorknobs, right? We know that CCR had more number two hits than anyone else who didn't have a number one. Can you believe they didn't have a number one? Come on. So we have all these things that are true. We know these are true, but they really don't change the way I live my life. They really don't change what I do. See, maybe Easter is that way for you. Or maybe Easter is something that you respect, but it doesn't really impact you beyond Easter morning. You know, it's like going to a baseball game or you're at a football game and the announcer calls your attention to a soldier who has just returned home from a foreign war. Somebody who's retiring, a de- decorated military personnel. And you stand up and you cheer and you take off your hat and you get really excited. Then the game starts again and you start rooting for your team again. And you probably forgot their name already. Is Easter like that for us? We, we show up at church, we dress up, we get excited, we, we go out to lunch, we have an Easter egg hunt with the kids, it's a great day. But then Monday, things just go back to normal. See, I don't know about you, I, I know for me, and I, I would assume for you, I want things to change. I want things to get better. I know there's certain things in my life that I want to see improve. So can Easter help me do that? You know, I look around the world we're in, and we see 12 months of, of just devastation that's been left by COVID. We see difficult situations. People ha- are, are tuning in online today, are coming in here this morning with heavy hearts, walking through tough seasons. Maybe there's a relationship that's a challenge in your life, or you have a difficult relationship with your kids, or you're just uncertain of the future, and you're fearful of what's going to happen. Can... What happened 2,000 years ago to Jesus changed my reality today. Can it make a difference and give me hope that I can change? Well, according to Jesus, the answer is absolutely yes. According to Jesus and according to the Bible, what Jesus did that very first Easter has the power to change our lives for good. Because what Jesus did on that very first Easter was make a way for us to finally come home. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to, to go to Florida on a trip, and we stayed at a bed and breakfast. Anybody here ever stay at a bed and breakfast before? It was our first time, and it was great. It was this cute little quaint house on the, on the intercoastal waterways in Melbourne Beach, Florida. And we went in, and uh, the host family, they were so sweet. They brought us in. They showed us our room, and they told us, hey, anything you need at any time, we've got you covered. 
They find out what you like for breakfast, and so you wake up in the morning, and there's a full spread. But if that's not what you want today, they'll make you something different. You need a Belgian waffle? Got it. No worries. You want eggs made a different way? No problem. They find out what you like in your coffee, how many creamers, how many sugars. And when you walk in, there's your coffee waiting for you. It was great. But oddly, after a few days of being in this wonderful home where I'm fully taken care of, I wanted to go home. You guys ever been there? You go on a great trip, you to, maybe it's a great vacation, or you're staying it with family, and you're there for a few days, and you're having a great time, but there's that kind of that tug inside of you that you want to go home. When I go home, I realize that I'm actually running a bed and breakfast for three little kids, right, who want everything a certain way. So don't, got to remember how many sugars going in their coffees. But that is the reality. I think each of us have this tug inside of us for home. We, we want home, and where we are now it doesn't quite feel like home. Where we are now, we still have that tug that we know something better is out there. We lay our heads down on our pillows at night, and we think there's got to be something better. There's got to be something more than this. There's got to be something else out there, something for home. You know, I think God has wired us this way. And, and the problem is that a lot of us, we, we end up turning that internal and we think, okay, well, maybe I have a little bit of money in the bank, so if I get more money in the bank, then I'll finally feel at home. Or we think, you know, I, my home right now is fine, but if I could just get a bigger home, a bigger house, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll finally can rest. Or we say, well, the relationships in my life aren't great. If I could just get a new relationship, if I could just meet somebody new or have some more friends or fill in the blank, then I will be complete and be satisfied. But really, isn't that just flawed logic? To think that if I could get more of something I already have, then I'll feel satisfied? See, there's something else at play here. That desire that we have inside of us for home, that's an indication that we were made, we were created for something more, that we were created for another home, a better home, a heavenly home. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that was, I was made for another world. Lewis is saying that if money and success and power and friendship and fame can't solve that craving in your soul for home, then listen up because it's showing you you were made for a different home. You were made for something more. And in John chapter 14, we see Jesus tell his disciples, hours before he goes to the cross, hours before he's arrested and he goes through the, he goes through, um, to the cross and, 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 and loses his life, he tells his disciples that he has come to make a way for us to go home. He has come to make a bridge for us to find rest for our weary souls. He has come to bring us home. So if you have your Bibles, let's grab those. Let's look at John chapter 14. And we're going to camp out in John 14, 1 through 6. A little background on, on, on what's going on right now in John. As you guys, if you followed along the past few weeks, Jesus and his disciples have been working their way towards Jerusalem. Last week we saw that Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on a donkey. He's hailed as king. They're laying down palm branches, and there's yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so Jesus is, he's in Jerusalem now, and he knows this is, his final, this is his final walk to the cross. And so he has been walking with his disciples, and now in John 14, he's in the upper room with his disciples, having the Last Supper. John 13 through 17 is what we know as Jesus' farewell discourse. 
And he's telling his disciples what's getting ready to happen. He's sharing with them of all of what's going to follow in the coming days. And he, he actually prays for them. And he prays for unity and love. And he says, let the world know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Forefront, that's his prayer for us too. That the world sees our love here at Forefront and knows that we belong to Jesus. Amen. And so Jesus is, is telling his disciples that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to lose his life. And he, he sees that his disciples are troubled, which of course they are. These men have been following, these men and women have been following Jesus for three years. They've been living life with Jesus. He's one of their best friends. But it was more than that. See, as we talked a little bit about last week, that his followers, his disciples, they pushed their chips all in on Jesus. They said, Jesus is going to be the Messiah king. He's going to be the one that pushes back Rome. That's the new king of Israel. Now we're going to have positions of power. And so Jesus tells them that all these things are going to happen. He's going to be arrested and lose his life. They think, well, all that's gone. So they're troubled and they're worried. And Jesus sees it. And so in this moment, Jesus gives one of the most remarkable, audacious, bold, radical claims about who he is and tells us something that if we can grasp it, It'll truly change our lives. Look here at John chapter 14. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus is, he's just had the Last Supper. He's just told Peter he's going to deny him. He's just told them all of what's going to happen. And he sees that they're, they're worried and they're anxious and they're fearful. And he says this, John 14, verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now let's just stop there for a second. I think Jesus is, is showing us something about his character here. See, Jesus is showing us here that that when we are troubled, he is the one that shows us compassion and love and mercy. Because remember, Jesus is hours away from getting arrested, hours away from torment, hours away from going to the cross. Jesus should be the one who's getting comforted. But what does he do? He's comforting his disciples. He's comforting his friends. And he's showing us something about his character. See, I think it's easy for me to read this and to think, well, what are you guys so worried about? He's been telling you for weeks that he's going to rise again. And didn't he just bring Lazarus out of the tomb? And didn't you just watch Jesus feed 5,000 people with a couple rolls of bread and a couple fish? And didn't you see Jesus walk on the water? And didn't you see Jesus calm the storm? Why are you guys so worried? But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't give them a hard time. Rather, what he does is he comforts them. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Look, at, look back at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So you think Jesus is showing us that in his character, when we are walking through difficult times, that he is gentle, that he is kind, that he is loving and compassionate. And he tells us that when we are experiencing trouble and anxiety and fear, that we need to fight that with faith. See, Jesus says that faith cures the troubled heart. See, I think a lot of us are... Not unlike the disciples right now. We're in a troubled place. We have troubled hearts. We're worried. We've seen the the havoc that's been wrecked. Some of our families have been wrecked by COVID. We're living in a nation with so much tension right now. We're wondering, why can't we have racial reconciliation? Why can't we agree politically? Why can't we just get along? Why can't we get together? We think of the heartbroken families in Boulder and Atlanta, and we say, God, there's just so much ugly going on right now. And so we're troubled. But Jesus says, don't let your hearts stay troubled. He doesn't say that we're not going to experience trouble. Trouble is part of life. 
Jesus tells us later that in John that, that we will in this world experience trouble, but he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus is saying what happens is we let uncertainty and anxiety lead us to fear, but when we fight that fear with faith, we can overcome it. So Jesus leans in in this moment and he says, look, don't be troubled, but be faithful. But notice something. Jesus gives us this command here to be faithful. But Jesus never just leaves us with a command. He always brings a promise behind. Jesus always, all throughout the Bible, when you see God give us a command, he always fulfills it with a promise. Notice the promise. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Verse 2, what does Jesus say? He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you guys see the promise? The promise is that when you experience trouble, know that I have gone to make a way for you to come home. I have gone to make a way for you to find that rest for your souls, to find peace and to find a joy, a place where you can walk in real communion with God, the place that your heart desires for home. That's where I'm going. That's the promise that I am going to bring. I'm going to make a way for you to make heaven home in your hearts. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this verse. He says that little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Isn't that so good? That's what we need, isn't it? When we're walking through tough times and difficult seasons, we need some heaven in our soul. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place. I go to make heaven real. I go to make a way for you to come home. And so Jesus is telling us here that when we get in these troubled times, we need to remember what he is doing, that he is bringing us home. And so Jesus tells us to his disciples, and he gives them this promise. And then I think he has a little fun with his disciples sometimes. I think Jesus would be hilarious to be around. It's so fun. And he says this. This is a somber moment, right? So I think he puts a little joke in here. Because he knows the disciples aren't really sure what's going on. And he says this in verse 4. Look here. He says, and you know the way where I'm going. And I just love Thomas, right? I don't know. Anybody, is Thomas your favorite Bible character? Because Thomas is great. Anytime Thomas shows up in the Bible, what is he doing? He's doubting, right? He's like, well, I don't know. Jesus, I'm not sure about that, right? Jesus, I don't believe you, right? How would you like to be remembered in the Bible for that one bad thing you did, right? That's Thomas, right? And so Thomas is like, um, hold on, Jesus, what, what are you saying here? So notice what Thomas says. He's like, uh, Jesus, I don't think we know where you're going. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not where, know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is like, Jesus, how do we know where you're going? You're always talking in code and riddles all the time. Like, we, we have no idea what we're doing here. And then Jesus uses that as a springboard to tell them that he is the way. One of the, the great I am statements in the book of John. Jesus says this. Look at verse 6. Powerful. Powerful. It gives one of the most audacious, bold, and radical claims in all of the Bible. Jesus says this in verse 6. He says, Thomas, you do know the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. And forefront, he's telling us, Jesus is the way. In the book of Mark, there's a, a really interesting story. The young man walks up to Jesus. Jesus and his disciples are out, and a, a young man, the Bible calls him a rich young ruler, walks up to Jesus, and he says, teacher, good teacher, how, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know what you need to do. 
keep the commandments. And he says, love your mother and your father. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. And the man says, well, I've done all that ever since I was a kid. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible tells us that the man went away deeply dismayed. Not sad, not a little upset, but deeply dismayed. Why was he so upset? Because Jesus told him that his way home didn't work. That the way that he was trying to get home wasn't the way. See, he thought that the way home was possessions. That would satisfy his soul. And he had riches. And the more he could get, the more satisfied he would be. But I bet if you asked him, if you could get him alone in a room, he would tell you that he's not satisfied, that he doesn't feel like he's at home yet. But yet, he wanted to go his own way. So I think for all of us, at some level, we have a picture of what home looks like. And we have the picture of how we're going to get home. Maybe it's, it's more success, it's, it's more friends, it's more power, it's, it's more money, it's a, it's a bank account or it's a 401k or whatever it is. That's going to be the way that we get home. See, I think Jesus is, is telling us right here by saying that he is the way that, that the, the divide between us and home, it, it isn't going to be filled with bank accounts and 401ks and power and success. It, it's going to be something beyond that. Because the divide, what keeps us from God, what keeps us from home, isn't not having enough stuff. It's sin and it's death. See, the Bible tells us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And if you go look up that verse and look up the word all in the Greek, it means all, right? We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so now we have this divide and this chasm between us and God. And no matter what we do, no matter how good we try to be, no matter how much we try to accomplish or accumulate or achieve, we can never cross over that canyon to God because of sin And because of death. But this is what is so beautiful and amazing about Easter. Is Jesus says, you can't and your way doesn't work, but mine does. And Jesus says, I'm going to make a way for you to come home. And I'm not going to build a bridge with a hammer and nails, but I'm building a bridge with my life. See, Jesus went to the cross and gave his life for us, and rose from the dead so he could make a way for us to come home. Forefront, Jesus is the way maker. Amen? Jesus is the way. And Jesus is creating space for your soul to find rest and to find communion with God. And you can never find that on your own any other way. It only comes through Jesus. I remember years ago when GPSs came out. Do you guys remember those? Back when GPSs came out? Anybody have one of those like first generation Garmin GPSs? They were like the size of a, like an iPad mini, right? And you, you, you hung it on your windshield right in the middle, right? So you couldn't see anything, right? You're like driving like this, right? Oh, with my directions. Okay, I'm driving like this. Well, Courtney, she liked to change the voice to like a, like a Scottish guy, right? You know, you know, I can't do the Scottish accent, but you know, there's just something cool about a Scottish accent, right? Sean Connery, right? Uh, it just Sean Connery. I mean, it just it's just good, right? And so I remember when whenever you take a wrong turn, it would be like rerouting, rerouting. You could even put Mr. T's voice on there sometimes. That was pretty good. You know, for us in life, when we try to go our own way, what happens? We get off course. We take the wrong turn. What does Jesus do for us? He reroutes us. 
Amen for that, right, Forefront? That Jesus is always rerouting us. He's always showing us that he is the way maker. That no matter where we've got ourselves off course, Jesus is going to reroute us back home. See, Thomas says, Jesus, we don't know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. But notice he also says, I am the truth. What does Jesus mean by that? You ever wondered? What does it mean when he says, I am the truth? I think what Jesus is telling us here when he says that he is the truth, he's saying that I am the truth of God. He's saying that if you want to know what God looks like, then just look at me. You know, the Bible says in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks of you, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God cares for the world, you look at Jesus. We see this picture of who God really is in Jesus. So I think there's this reality in life. It's this. It's how you view God will determine how you view yourself. That, that, that what you see in God changes how you view you. And then how you view you determines how you live. So here's what I mean. Just imagine if you think of God as this tyrannical judge, that all he does is just pound the gavel every time you mess up, then you're going to live a life walking on tiptoes, walking on eggshells, worried that you're going to make a mistake. If you view God as some enforcement officer who's just trying to keep the rules, then you're always going to be looking over your back, making sure you don't mess up. If you view God as some deistic creator that's just far away, that just doesn't have anything to do with his creation, that just set it and forget it, then there's no relationship. There's no intimate relationship with God at all. How you view God determines how you view yourself, and how you view yourself determines how you live. So if you want to see what God really thinks about you, then go and encounter Jesus. Go and see who Jesus is and how he treats the people he's around because it shows you how God treats you. In John chapter 8, there's this powerful account that Jesus has with uh, this woman who's caught into a, in adultery. And the uh, religious leaders, they, they, they catch her in the act. I don't even understand that. And they, they bring her out to Jesus and they say, Jesus, this woman's been caught in adultery. She should be condemned. And in the law, she should lose her life. So Jesus, in that moment, looks at them and says, okay, well, those of you without sin, throw the first stone. And then he bends down, and he starts to ride in the dirt a little bit, and you hear, thud, thud, thud. And he looks up, and everybody's gone, except her. And he looks at her, and he says, well, where's your accusers? Is there no one still here to condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus looks at her and says, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. See, we see Jesus in moments like that showing compassion and love and mercy and grace. And that shows us that when we get in those same moments, when we fall off the track, when we run away from home, Jesus is there to love on us, to show us compassion and to show us mercy and to show us what we need. You know, we think of Easter, we think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But sometimes we miss John 3.17. Here's what Jesus said. He said, for God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be what? Saved through him. But in order for Jesus to save the world, we have to see that Jesus is the truth. 
Sometimes people will say, well, the truth sets you free. Well, that's, that's true. It does. But we're missing something there. We have to know the truth if the truth is going to set us free. A little later in John 8, Jesus says this about that. He says in John 8, 31, 32, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, this Bible is full of truth. But if I just hold it in my hand, what, what, what is it going to do for me? Maybe it's a good paperweight. I have to know the truth if the truth is going to set me free. And that's why Jesus is saying we need to know the truth. Because when we know the truth, the truth sets us free. So let me ask you, do you guys know the truth? Do you personally know Jesus, the one who is the truth? And has that truth set you free? Thomas says, Jesus, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. And I am the truth. And third, he says, I am the life. Forefront, Jesus is the life. This may be the most radical claim of all. Jesus is saying that the life that you want to live, the life that you were created to live, the life that you know you want deep in your soul that you crave for, the only way you can actually live and experience that life is through him. It's in Jesus. You might say, well, Jesus, that's a bold claim. That's a radical claim. He said, yeah, and I'll back that claim up by rising from the dead. And he did. You know, I I think sometimes we look at the commands of Jesus all throughout the Bible. We look at all of the do's and the don'ts and the have-nots, and we think, well, God, you just don't want us to have any fun. God, you just don't want us to enjoy life. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. If you think that, you've got it all wrong. All of the words of God are meant to help us live the life that we are created for. God's not trying to steal fun from us. God's trying to give us fullness of life. The Bible says that Jesus came to give us life, and so we can have that life abundantly. And the way to experience that abundant life is through him. It's by following him. Now, that doesn't mean that people who are non-believers can't enjoy life. Someone who's not a Christian can still enjoy the world we live in. People can, that, that aren't believers can still enjoy a great meal. You can still enjoy a beautiful sunset. You can still go to a concert and have a great time and enjoy the music. But isn't going to a restaurant where you know the chef, doesn't that make that meal taste just a little bit better? Isn't going to a concert of a friend when they're playing make that music sound a little bit sweeter? See, when you know Jesus, you know the creator, the one who made it all, and it means that we can experience a fullness in life that we can't experience anywhere else, that we can't get on our own, that only Jesus brings to us. See, God has designed the world to work in such a way, the only way to truly experience it in its fullness is through Jesus. I like what Augustine has to say, the fourth century bishop of Hippo. He says this. He says, talking to God, he says, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That's the reality, my friends, is that we're going to try to live the life we want, and we're never going to reach it. If we try to do it on our own, we can only get there through Jesus, because Jesus leads us to the fullness of life. And then on Easter morning, two days On the third day, a couple days after Jesus says this to his disciples, he validates and backs up everything he said when he kicks that stone out of the way and steps out of the tomb and rises from the dead. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he validated it by rising from the grave. See, how do we know that this can change our lives? Back to that first question. How can the hope of Easter change my life? 
How do we know it works? We look at the lives of the disciples. These 11 men who scattered when Jesus was arrested, except for Peter, and then he denied him. Who ran away when Jesus was crucified, except for John and his mother and some of the the ladies. Who ran off and hid in the upper room because they were afraid they were going to get arrested. But then days later are preaching boldly outside, telling people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How could that happen? Because they saw the resurrected Jesus. They saw Jesus alive. And my friends, when you and I see Jesus alive, that Jesus is risen, it can change us too. Because we see that Jesus it truly is the way, the truth, and the life. Last week, you guys might have saw the story of the uh, container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal in Egypt. You guys see the story? This ship is like the size of a skyscraper, and yet it got stuck in the Suez Canal. Now, what's really interesting about the Suez Canal is, as you can see, it's not a small canal. 12% of the world's global trade moves through this canal. So this container ship getting stuck, it, it's, it backed up and slowed down you know, global trade. And they tried to figure out what, what got it stuck. What got it stuck? The transportation company, of course, said that it was a sandstorm or it was a strong wind. But we all know it was user error, right? Like when we get stuck in life, it's usually user error. At least it is for my life. And so they couldn't get it unstuck. They brought these little tugboats in. They brought the dredges in to try to get it to move, and they couldn't get it to move. For a week, it sat there. Did you guys hear how it got unstuck? So there was a full moon on Sunday. And the full moon brought high spring tides, and it refloated the ship. And the tugboats and the dredges were able to then get it free with a little bit of effort. Isn't that the picture for our life? How often do, because of user error, do we get our own, ourselves stuck? How often do we try to go our own way and we get stuck? And we need something bigger than us to help refloat us back on the way. Where are you stuck right now? Jesus tells us that he is the way and the truth and the life. And that the fullness of life is available in him, but yet maybe some of us might say, well, I'm just not experiencing that. It's, I think it's because we're stuck. Because we've allowed something to get us jammed up. And maybe it's insecurity. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship. Maybe it's a sin that just we, we, we keep struggling with. It keeps rearing its ugly head. And then we're stuck and we're not able to, to, to have the life that Jesus created us to live to flow through us. Maybe for some of us, we just tried to follow our own way so long we ran away from home. That Jesus made a way for us to come home, but we thought our way was better. And so we went and we ran away. You're like that, that son in Luke 15. You're familiar with the story of the prodigal son who just said, my way is better and I'm going to go. But yet he finds himself stuck in a pigsty, wallowing in the mud, wishing he could be home. Forefront, what I want you to see this Easter is no matter where you are, no matter how you're stuck, no matter if you ran away or you've got off track, God is here to reroute you. And when Jesus went to that cross, on that cross was nailed everything that gets in the way. Jesus takes all of that from us. So that in him, when we follow him and we give that to him, Jesus frees up so that we can live the life we were created to live. 
And Jesus says, our Heavenly Father is standing on the hill, looking out on the horizon with arms wide open, waiting for us to come home. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And when we see it, it'll change our lives. It has the power to change my situation. It has the power to change my circumstance. And it has the power to change my heart. So Jesus invites us today to come home and to follow him. Forefront, let's turn our eyes and our hope on him. Let's pray together.